A quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. From running the mile to dodgeball or just watching from the bleachers, most of us have an opinion of how we remember PE class. But what does it look like now? And should it even be part of a child's curriculum? Today, we are joined by Dr. Jenna Gorlay and John Tureen to look at what happened to PE class. We dive into the history of PE and how it's evolved over the years. We look at the serious risks of inactivity, what's right and wrong with PE, and how to get kids to buy in. We share ideas on empowering children at all levels and tips to get kids moving no matter their environment. So let's line up single file and head into today's episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Great, real excited today about this topic. Uh, it's something that you and I have been passionate about since we really our careers probably began. We started working together, and we got two people that we've had a special relationship. Uh, Dr. Jenna Gourlay, physical therapist, um, who actually has a background in physical education, certainly has a passion for physical education. And of course, John Tureen, who we've worked with for probably going on 20 years now, um, strength coach, uh, you know, very experienced in the field of strength conditioning, but also has a huge passion um, for physical education. So we're going to tackle this topic that you know, really um, is, even though everybody knows it's important, nobody's doing anything with the highest levels of government and trying to really make this something that um, is much more important. Um, and I'm going to kick it over and, and shoot it over to, to Jenna and let her kind of give us a little bit more perspective, um, one, from her background as a physical educator where she started, but also as she's kind of gotten um, a lot more involved in physical therapy and what she's seen as a physical therapist. So Jenna, you know, thanks for coming on today first for, and yeah. foremost, um, but you know, what are you seeing going on right now in the landscape of physical education from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I started as a physical educator. I loved it, but what frustrated me so much when I was teaching was, you know, the kids that couldn't squat, they couldn't move well, and worst of all, they were, you know, groaning like, oh, my knee hurts or my ankle hurts and, you know, Miss Gorley, my back hurts now. And I thought, okay, I have to go back to PT school. I have to go back and, you know, figure out how to help these kids, how to fix these kids. And I'm glad I did it. But at the same time now, being a physical therapist, I recognize like the huge opportunity that I had when I was a PE teacher that I didn't know. Because at this point, I see one kid maybe six to eight visits when they're already in pain. And that's if their parents can bring them in. Whereas when I was in the gym, I had... 50 kids that I got to see on a regular basis over a longer period of time. So when I think about changing movement and I think about making an impact, I had more of an opportunity to do so when I was in PE and, you know, if you're a coach or you're a parent, you have a tremendous opportunity over a long span where I see a small amount now. And, and John, kind of following up with that, I mean, your background, I mean, you, you know, when Gray and I started working with you, you were 
working in the NFL as an NFL strength coach, you know, what, what probably 15 years. And you really, you know, I, I would assume because of your kids, you really started kind of transitioning and, and obviously got out of the NFL. But now your passion is trying to go back and, and help and kind of the same things you saw that Jenna just described. Yeah, so you know, we, we saw it on two two different ways. Um, certainly your own kids, you get to experience different things like that. But um, I saw what was going on in the youth sports fields of America, um, both physically and, and emotionally. And then an instance in, in what really was going on in physical education through an experience with my children and, and their absolutely amazing physical education teacher named Kevin Lydon here in uh, Fairhaven, New Jersey, where I live, and the impact he was having on on not only my young kids, but all of the children in the school and the community. And I had not really understood what was going on in physical education at that time, having been locked, um, locked in a world of pro sports. Um, and once I got exposed to uh, what in fact was going on in physical education, started talking to physical educators and diving in and immersing myself in that world of physical literacy, physical education, then having to go back and understand, okay, how did we get to where we are um, with our kids, with this country in terms of our physical culture, our physical development, our physical literacy, and really started looking at the history to understand some of it, both very long-term and very recent, and things started becoming very, very clear um, as to where things maybe took a, a wrong turn, where things are great. Well, well John, where, where did things take a wrong turn when you started looking back at that? Where do you think things started getting off the tracks? You know, you can, and I'm, I'm certainly not a historian. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, there's a, a friend of mine, a gentleman named, named Ron Jones, who, who uh, Gray and I had the great... Uh, great conversation with uh, as recently as yesterday, who's a, a walking Google of, of historical physical ed- education. Um, uh, he put out a movie called The Motivation Movie, which goes into different um, historical perspective. When I watched that documentary film, um, the part around the terms of Eisenhower and JFK stood out. Many things wrapped around, and, and, and you guys talk around it uh, quite, quite often and, and historically as well, around the Krauss-Weber test. Um, but what happened around the Krauss-Weber test was President Eisenhower, who was in term at the time, got a hold of this information, realized you know almost 58% of the American children failed as compared to around 9% of the European children. He was a military man and looked at this as a national crisis. And um, he put in and instituted what we all know now today is some name called President's Council. It's changed 10,000 times, but it has some name like that uh, as we sit here today. It didn't work because as you look at it, one thing that we learn is we were confused. We didn't know what he meant by it. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know how to do it. When JFK took term, and this is fascinating, um, he realized that this was a national crisis. He, uh, he was a, a sporting man had had uh, his own back issues and things like that. But he said, hey, we have to look into this. Um, and, and to quote, he said, this is a matter of concern to us all in a speech in 1962 that he gave. And he said, we have to put our time, effort, energy and resources. Otherwise, we're going to be this is a security problem, a healthcare problem. Uh, the future of our country depends on it. And that's why it's a matter of concern to us all. 
what he did was was to then institute this and and re uh, engage this president's council. One of the things to theorize, and and what Ron Jones will tell you, the historian, is when JFK was assassinated, true physical education, much of it went away with him, with JFK. This is back in the 60s. And and that's what Ron will tell you. That's what this movie will highlight for you. Um, But what he did was, in order to enact this idea to get physically active and and, and better on muscular fitness and muscles and all these things, he, he took Bud Wilkinson, a very famous football coach in the NCAA of Oklahoma, national championship football coach, and started to say, let's let's put this in a sporting mindset. And that is maybe where things turned a little bit, because as many of us know, albeit that there's overlap, there's a huge difference in sports skill and physical education, physical literacy. I may be able to throw a ball, but I may never pitch. Two All right, totally so, so John, let me, let me stop you and just clarify this. So you're basically what I'm hearing you say <clears throat> is that they recognized the problem in the 50s with Eisenhower, but the problem started long before that, right? And they, were yeah. trying, they recognized there was an issue, but we were, we were coming off the tracks long before that. So great. Well, even with you, you, you and stuff you've read and saw, you started go back to even to the you know, teens and 20s. Um, 1900s of where you started seeing things get derailed. They they started getting derailed, <clears throat> and the the United States has always prized competition and athletics. And the only observation I've got is when you switch from a physical culture to an athletic culture, you actually generate more spectators than athletes. It's just the natural thing. I mean, if you go to a kid's soccer match right now, there's a lot more lawn chairs than shoes running around. There just is, and so. I think by by default, we think we are a physical culture, and yet we're not. And I think what John was saying with JFK is he got the why statement. The, the physical currency of a country underpins the strength of that country. And so when your kids are getting less physically aware of how and who they are and don't know what to do about it, um, before you know it, it's so scary you start lowering the bars. We have lowered the bars in physical education for what kids should be able to do, and we call that physical competency, but there's no SOL for that. So everything else we justify educating people about, there's a standard of learning that demonstrates you are competent at the minimum levels. And just to go back to what John was saying about the Krauss-Weber test, I want you guys, if you're listening to this, you're, you're already thinking about movement. What's a Krauss-Weber test? Lay on your belly and have somebody hold you down and try to lift both your legs for 10 seconds, 10 inches off the ground. Do the exact same thing with your trunk while somebody holds your legs down. Probably put a pillow or a blanket or a rolled up towel under your pelvis. Then you turn around and try to do a sit up with straight legs, somebody holding, and a sit up with bent legs, somebody holding them. When you're done with that, stand up, feet together, and lock your knees. This is according to the Krauss-Weber standard, and you should be able to touch their floor. If you can't do any of the first four muscular tests for 10 seconds, or if you can't touch your toes, you flunk the whole thing. That was originally designed as a diagnostic test. Hans Weber, Hans Krauss and um, Dr. Weber were using for the diagnosis and administration of low back pain caused by 
postural muscle weakness. So that is very, very important. When we take kinesiology, we are impressed by all the muscles that Arnold Schwarzenegger showed us and none of the muscles that lay close to the bone or stabilize the joint. And what the Krauss-Weber test was trying to say is your posture and your movement patterns are flying blind if you can't even do these things. You cannot even combat gravity throughout the day. You cannot keep your spine where it needs to be. You cannot feed your brain information about movement. So everything gets distorted. And back to the sports analogy, it's like taking a kid who has a hearing problem and saying, we can't help you unless you want to play a musical instrument. I don't have to be interested in music to get my hearing rectified. And I shouldn't have to be interested in sports. And even though I have a love for competition in sports, I think the one thing sports does that physical education ceased to do is physical education became the cafeteria line for exercise. And exercise ain't fun. It just isn't. But competition and play and self-exploration is, is very fun. So if we could take the things that engage us about sports and turn those into natural physical obstacles, we now have the engagement of the sports and athletic competition because it's not somebody else now, it's you and an obstacle. And we also have the natural refining of movement that doesn't need to be organized if we get it far enough upstream. And, and uh, Dan Heath just did a great book on upstream and it's hard for, I think, anybody in this room to listen to that and not realize the upstream opportunity that we're missing every day we try to fix function when we find it instead of fixing it up in health. If kids could sleep more right now, everything would be better. What's the best way to sleep more? Get physical activity so you have a reason to sleep. But if you're just enter entertaining blue light all day, you're not going to sleep well at night. So I think sleep correlates with learning and physical activity correlates with sleep and both correlate with obesity. So going back to John, kind of going back to what you said with the coach from Oklahoma getting inserted, it sounded like, going back to the history part of this, getting inserted as a way to help fix the problem through sports and activity. Is that, is that kind of the way it's working? But basically, Krauss-Weber test, testing shined a light on the problem. And the way they were trying to fix the problem during those times was trying to get people playing more sports? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think um, the, the Krauss-Weber certainly shined a light on the problem um, it was going on way before that. And there's names like Tucker and, and, and other folks way early on, but you know, this country celebrates celebrity so, so much, uh, right. And JFK knew it and he's probably one of our biggest celebrity presidents anyhow. Um, but he said, well, let's get this celebrity who also is a national, you know, we just bow at the foot of, 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 of football champions, you know, for no reason. And um, other than maybe respecting some type of accomplishment, so let's get Bud Wilkinson on the job. And he didn't do anything wrong, but we brought the wrong, you know, we brought the wrong person to to to, to the wrong meal. And so there's overlap, and, and it's easy to confuse. But again, um, as we look at it, uh, it is, and, and Gray mentioned something. And Jenna, you might want to comment on this article that I know you uh, uh, had looked at. Uh, piece of research where they actually looked at trying to improve kids through physical education and um, kids didn't like it. Well, one of the things that's happened when you look at, um, uh, if you take, I like to break things down back to human biology, right? And our own B12 
behavior, but we have to understand our, our, our biology and how we all function the same, right? So whether you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something absolutely brilliant and beautiful that Tony Robbins did called the six human needs, six human needs being need for certainty, uncertainty, significance, connection, growth, and contribution. When you look at sports, sports actually is a vehicle to meet actually all six human needs and we meet our human needs either positively or negatively and whatever the vehicle is to meet those needs we'll do it whether it's rob a bank to meet a human need or or get married to meet a human need but we will meet those human needs what tony robbins will tell you if you meet three or more you become addicted the re- much of the reason that people have problems after a long career in pro sports or military or other things like that is that their needs are no longer met what i would tell you is perhaps Gray alluded to it. Are we meeting any of those six human needs in physical education? Like above all else, well, make it fun. Well, what does fun mean, right? And we have to look at that. But is there certainty, uncertainty, significance? Because you can get real negative significance in physical education. I could tell you firsthand, or you can get real connection. Um, and, and you don't want to become the significant one that couldn't do the president's uh, freaking pull-ups, right? Uh, you'd never go back to phys ed again. And, and it's not um, about that, but it's about meeting these six human needs and understanding what – and we'll get into what fun means in a minute. But um, I know Jenna had that article. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Jenna. Yeah. Yeah, so what John's talking about is there's a good amount of research that says uh, the more perceived motor competency that kids have, so the better that they feel and they think that they move, the more that they actually move. So they feel like they move well and they move more. I think uh, one example of this is we do performance training with the kids and we have a lot that are from like ages 10 to 13. One in particular, there's this 12-year-old kid, and I announced that we're going to do jump rope. And before I even finished the word, he's like, oh, my gosh, we're going to do jump rope. And we get it out, and he's, he grabs a jump rope, and he cannot put a single jump timed right over this jump rope, right? And it's so frustrating for him. We go through a lot of different activities, and eventually he gets to the point where he can do it. Fast forward like two weeks and announce again, we're going to do jump rope. And he's the first one running to get it because now he can jump 20 times in a row and he's smiling as he do it. Now, did jump roping change? The activity didn't, but how he felt doing it certainly did. So when we think about, you know, how do we get kids moving more? We keep pushing them towards sports. We keep saying, okay, you know, go do these 10 things. But you know, I'm 5'2", and I got stuffed every time I tried to go for a layup in basketball. Like, that wasn't fun. I didn't want to do that. But once you get some competency and you get better at something, you're that much more likely to do it. So I think by focusing so much on more, we started to ignore doing it better, and we alienated a lot of kids that could have improved. Now, you guys bring up good points, and to really oversimplify what I tried to do in my little physical education experiment is I've always been a big fan of a self-limiting situation, self-limiting exercise. Whether it's an adult and we're basically evaluating them, we find out their core is functioning so poor, we got to start with rolling. I love to find somebody who can roll to one side and not the other. And the little tricks we do, we don't talk them into it. We just tilt them a little further in that direction. We almost give them a running start on their bad side. And before they know it, they just connect it. And it's such a nonverbal, clean instruction 
that I think your neurological system embraces it better. So all you've really got to do is scale a physical obstacle so that some of the class does okay and some of the class is very challenged and let them imprint each other. And, and it's really cool to do it. So sometimes you, you scale it, you make them a little too hard or, or a little too easy, but it's just, it's really neat to drop back to a nonverbal instruction and give people a little more time to overcome the obstacle without making them perform it. And, and I always like to just rhythmically say in my head, play, practice, train. You play to gauge yourself and survey the environment and your competition. And it should be fun and engaging. And there are certain aspects of that play that you may want to practice a little more can't dribble a basketball that well. So I'm going to work on dribbling, but next time we play basketball, it's transferable. It comes right in. And then there's training. How long can I play and be consistent? But too often we skip play, have no engagement, and we start practicing things we don't understand the purpose for, and then we do it at volume and call that exercise and training. So most people go straight to training loads they don't practice with any degree of precision or instruction the skill that they're going to put under volume. And I don't even know you want to do it because we didn't play with it first. But that play creates a balanced engagement. And one of the things that happened with the way school has changed right now, I have had a chance to visit some of Zena's friends' houses. There's balance beams next to the sandbox at all three houses we visited. Why you guys got a balance beam? Well, Mr. Cook had one in gym class, and I was not as good on balance as I wanted to be, so I got dad to build one. Of course, the dad comes out and goes, is that uh, balance beam good? And I'm like, did they use it? He's like, yeah. I said, it's good. <laughs> well, isn't part of the problem, it's one thing that, you know, Jenna, in your experience as an actual person, been in the classroom much more than anybody in, sitting here right now, and John, you alluded to it, is you, we, in every profession, you're going to have good physical therapists, good strength coaches, bad physical therapists, bad strength coaches, good PE teachers, bad PE teachers. Is it part of the problem? Because let's be honest, there's there's probably not one person in the U.S. doesn't recognize there's a problem with physical education. I mean, everybody knows it's like, yeah, no one's eating right. We all know you should stop smoking, but there's still people smoking. So, is it part of the problem? There's there's no there's no standard. There's no say. There's no curriculum. Um, if there is one, most people aren't following it. I mean, isn't that part of what we've got to figure out? Lee and Janet can tell you this, but in, in the time that I've immersed myself into this world, um, physical education from a curriculum standpoint is, in fact, the wild, wild west. It's not even just state to state. It could be teacher to teacher within the same school doing different curriculums. And, and I, would, I would fly by this um, real quickly. What I also started realizing was that and, – and, and, the, the PE teacher is the one that hasn't had the chance to actually correct this, right? So we pulled physical education out. What we've learned now also is our administrators, our next generation of administrators, our younger administrators that are coming up have now grown up with physical education way different than even the three of us did, maybe not so much Jenna in terms of age. And so what they don't even know that it matters and don't believe it matters, plus the pressure on them to, to deal with standardized testing and take the time away to worry about standardized testing. They don't, haven't even brought this association together. But now we sit here in 2020, and the only thing we're better at 
is early intervention and early screening, right? We've got better technology as far as what we've made a difference. Injuries are worse than they've ever been. We know we can't feel the military the same way we have been. Our healthcare, uh, as noted by you guys and many others, musculoskeletal is, is the highest cost in healthcare right now, has taken over metabolic. Um, and so PE in parallel has run that it hasn't been the same. I would argue, I would argue that We've all had a chance, ATC, strength conditioning coach, physical therapists, doctors, trainers, we got better people, more schools, everything else, and we all agree that we're more obese, lifelong participation in sports are down, kids are quitting sports, all of these other statistics that scare the hell out of us. The, the profession that actually hasn't had the chance, that knows how to do it, is the physical educator. We just started making assemblies during PE time and have taken that away from them, and they actually are on the front line of healthcare. And they know how to do it. They don't need more play 60s. I'm an NFL guy. Play 60s is a freaking carnival. And it's a blast for a day. And then you go home with a stomach ache. And then you can't wait till next year. <laughs> right? PE is a sustainable, long-term model of independence. Well, and, and, and the one thing, John, John, I'll get you and both Jenna to speak to this, is the research is overwhelming. Say, tell, saying how important physical education is. That's the one thing that baffles me. I dove into this back in the 2005, 2006. I went into my wife, who was teaching first grade, tested their kids just because I was just curious. That's back when I was doing the PhD thing. I'm like, you know, maybe this is my project. Went in and tested those kids. One, they beat the hell out of me for a good hour trying to get them tested. But the one <laughs> thing my wife said is like, yeah, Lee, the, lower, the kids that scored lower had worse test scores. And that's been researched forever, right? I mean, that's not a secret. No, I mean, the, the whole book spark, like they, the whole book surrounds the fact that if we get kids moving more that we see SAT scores go up and grades go up. So, I mean, we know that the link is there, but we haven't necessarily fixed the problem. I think that's where we're running into issue is because we know what the problem is and we theoretically know how to fix it, but I don't know that we have necessarily done that. Like you said, we have the musculoskeletal problems. We have all these different things that we haven't made a huge change. It's kind of like, um, it's. I think it comes down to like the environment. The kids, yeah, we want to point at technology and we want to point the finger at poor diet, but it's all these things together that make it really hard for kids to then go and do sports and do things like that. It, um, it makes me think of a really cool story in the book, Move Your DNA, where uh, the author talks about orcas. And if you've seen Free Willy or you've uh, seen an orca in a zoo, you see this curved dorsal fin. And now if that's the only place you've ever seen them, you say to yourself, okay, orcas have curved dorsal fins, but they actually don't in the wild. What happens in the wild is they can swim for you know, miles and miles straight and they can swim at really high speeds. And those forces create that that higher, you know, more vertical fin. So we're sitting here, we're saying, okay, you know, kids aren't as good today and they don't move as well. And I'm not saying that they're in captivity, but we haven't offset the environment that they're in. You know, we're not getting them to do more. We're not getting them to move better. And, you know, quote unquote, we're not getting them to, you know, maybe reach the speeds that they need to do to not have that curved dorsal fin. So I think a lot has to come from their environment and what we teach them in that environment. All right, two things. That book, Spark, was amazing. But I was very disappointed in the summation of that book because they made the hero of the story oxygen. 
They took the metabolic approach. And the problem you get there is physical education just becomes physical activity. I didn't say this kid just needs to jump around because I agree that gets the wiggles out, but it doesn't force the brain to do anything different. When a child confronts a balance beam or a box or a physical obstacle or tries to jump from one circle to another, they have to project and organize and then reflect on their performance. There's a lot of problem solving that goes on in that physical environment, and that primes the pump for problem solving everywhere else. Lee and I had an opportunity to work with a, with a school that worked with kids that had you know dyslexia and other learning disabilities and there was random physical therapy there was a organized yoga class and then there was this little movement screen approach that said their greatest movement pattern problem is where we're going to put them so kids who had a hard time in quadruped they were just crawling through tubes and and so we basically tried to follow one of those things that i said in the movement book we put you at the edge of your ability in a sensory rich environment Okay, not a noise or instruction rich environment, right? Not a whistle blowing environment. It's a sensory rich environment. So we're lighting up your hands and feet. We're doing exactly what your movement nutrient survey said you lack the most. So if it happens to be core for you and flexibility for John, then that's what we're doing. But we gamify the obstacles that make John express his freedom and you express your control. And so we just, the self-limiting thing, you don't have to tell a kid when they fall off a balance beam. You often have to tell a kid they're not dribbling smooth. So before we get to the skill, the balance beam does so much and it forces the brain, the left and right hemisphere, to work together. So physical education would be finding something that's below the baseline and bringing it to the baseline or taking something above the baseline to create a problem-solving buffer. I honestly think that the book Spark would leave the average reader thinking the problem is physical activity, and Mm -hmm. it's not. It's physical problem-solving, and without obstacles and a movement baseline, we can't scale that, so we can't create the math problem that we don't help you with. This problem has been around for a while, and you know, let's look look at society right now. What, what's the impact it's actually having on people? Since you know, John, you, you mentioned it's this is was recognized as an issue back in the fifties and sixties, and it doesn't sound like we've really tried to tackle the problem. Maybe some people have. Um, we've talking about it a lot, but what is it? What is the what's left of the eighteen to twenty five year old now that's that's going through without? you know, having a good idea about what PE is supposed to be like. Yeah, so I think it's really cool when you can, we're also emotionally attached to this this thing, right? And, and we're, we're almost in this with blinders on. But I think if we look, peel back, and if you take a look at, look at what the video gaming industry has done, right? And we could all poo-poo it and ah, it's crap and it's ruined us and all that. You can't argue with its success, Right. And Gray mentioned the word gamify just before. And so what what you, Janet, and her classes and with her, her kids, Lee, what you've done, what many of the great physical educators are, have, have done and recognized is not only this idea of gamification, but more so this idea of that the thing that you're doing teaches you. Right. Uh, Gray refers to self-limiting exercise all the time, like a jump rope or a balance beam. Let me dive into something real quick. There's a there's a theory um, 
proposed by two professors at the University of Rochester quite a few decades ago. Many may be familiar with what's called the self-determination theory. And it's very simple. In order to have um, both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, three things are a must. Autonomy, competence, and connection or relatedness, right? So autonomy, belief in that I can do something. I know I can get better competence actually doing the thing and the ability to do it. And then a connection or relatedness to either the thing or the tribe or people or community I'm doing it with. And anytime you get full engagement, you'll see that those things are on the table. When you look at the video gaming industry, look at what it's done in brilliance, right? Especially now. It's not the Atari of the day back, you know, a uh, hundred years ago when Gray was, was, was doing it. But when you look at the gaming industry, what have they done? First of all, you know who's not involved? Us, the parents, right? We don't even know what the hell's going on down there. So we're not even involved, which means we're not the yelling parent on the sideline. We're not the overly obsessed um, parent in the car yelling at the kid about how he didn't score a goal. We're not, we don't even, they make fun of us. We don't even know what the hell is going on. We don't even know how to turn the video game on. But what they've done is create an autonomy within the video game. There's a competence there because there's always a way to level up, right? You can always be better at it. And you never, you could argue you never master, or you get some type of mastery level. And now what's crazy is, isn't there a connection and relatedness to it? Not only to the thing, but they got the headphones on and they're all talking to their friends, especially now during COVID. But even prior to that, they're connecting with their friends around this thing. It's quite social on in this modern that it's social a dopamine event. smoothie. Huh? It's a dopamine smoothie. <laughs> right on. So, by the way, doesn't it also hit all six human needs? That's why we have gaming addiction. How do we even compete with that? Well, don't recognize the positives that's actually done. You know, but see, I, I, I want to add one thing. If you have what seems like a physical experience without a dump of the physical tension it creates, they've done everything except you just went on a wild ride or had an amazing fight or an amazing game. And yet all that tension, all that adrenaline, it didn't dump anywhere. It's going to go into bad, bad sleep. So they, they've done everything perfectly. And I totally agree with you. If we could make you play those games standing on a balance beam or jumping on a mini tramp, it would almost cover the thing, but it still should be let your uh, subconscious run your body in an elegant way so your conscious can predict and forecast and compete and do things like that. So they've done everything but that physical dump of energy. And one of the things Krauss was talking about when he invented the Krauss-Weber test is he developed the test for low back pain. They used the test on kids and the majority of America flunked in less than 10% of war-torn Europe that was still on food rations flunked. And he had no idea this was going to be a test. But he goes, don't just pass the test. It's a minimum standard. This, this basically says you're so broken, only specific exercise will fix you, fix you. General activity will leave you behind and break you in half. You need specialized exercise to the point where Krauss had a hard time teaching other people just to follow the standard operating procedure that got the 80-20 play that said exercise fixes it, but not activity and not your randomized thought of exercise of the day, a specific diet that addresses your malnutrition is going to fix you. 
And, and that's where I think that the gaming industry is right, and we need to follow all those leads John just says. But if we don't have a physical problem-solving, obstacle-based component, you'll never balance the human. It won't be a balanced human. It'll be, it'll be somebody who is looking for the headset and the, the gaming pad every day to dump energy that they're not dumping. They're dumping anxiety, but they're creating tension. So Yeah, we've seen the negative side effects of that. We've seen the negative side effects of even too much of, of what you're saying, causing injury and other things in that way. Yeah, I mean, everything has a rhythm and oscillation to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it physic- it, physically we've changed. I mean, you know, right now, if you look at what the average person weighed going into World War II was, what, 150 pounds? What's the average soldier, you know, starting basic training now? And is that due to what reason? I mean, is it just because I think it goes back to the point Jenna made. It's, it's a lot of it has to do with the environment we're in. I mean, technology is allowing us to basically, technology is allowing us to be in one room. Right now, the room we're in, not have to leave this room, and you can get everything delivered right to your door. Yeah, who the hell made that the goal? Like, that was the good thing. That's what we're striving for is to not leave the house. But the, the environment has allowed that and our kids assume that's what is normal yeah and what we're doing going back you know we're talking a little bit of the military what we're doing is lowering the standards what's the standard now to be physically fit as it compared compared to what it was in the 60s all right here's one the department of defense is spending almost four billion dollars each year on obesity related issues there's been so many significant increase in musculoskeletal injuries uh 72 percent among uh, evacuations in afghanistan and iraq were musculoskeletal injuries at play or in training that means blowing your knee in basketball is going to get you flown out of there quicker than a bullet wound or an explosion or something like that. I don't want any of it, but my whole point is, you know, uh, the military is a perfect petri dish of a cross section of America right now, and they just simply keep better, better records than the normal person. And what we're seeing in the military is sedentary people that still expect to be active when necessary and. If you can't pass the minimum test, uh, it does it. And I, we, obesity gets attacked, but obesity simply is a cluster of age accelerators. All right. And if we simply talk about how many age accelerators do you have, do you want to look 60 when you're 45? Because that's where you're headed. These are age accelerators. Obesity is basically the way your body actually buffers mismanaged sugar. So the fact that we attack trans fats with pitchforks and let high fructose keep on flowing just tells me we got way more lobbyists that tr- are trying to process sugar in us. But that whole point is if, if sugar is a big part of your diet, it's actually healthier to get an obese buffer to dissipate that, especially if your pancreas is on a, on a thing. So we, we attack obesity, but we don't realize all those things are just age accelerators. And, and I think people need to look on down and say, you know, how many 85-year-olds are in caskets that are fitting obese people? There are none, all right? The, the obesity dies at 60 and 70, and non-obesity usually makes it to 80 or 90. So if you don't think it's an age accelerant, just think about the last few funerals you went to, and it's, it's a morbid thing to think about, but you don't attack obesity. You attack the behaviors associated with age acceleration unnecessarily. But it doesn't even go to the point of right now, it's not really 
it, it's not frowned upon as much as it used to be to be unfit, right? I mean, you know, even in the military that we're talking about, if you don't meet the minimum standards, it's not like you're not going to get in. They're just going to go send you to a different four-week, you know, boot camp designed to get you ready to go. And I think we're, again, going back to kind of what maybe Jenna, you speak to, we're, we're somewhat lowering the standards or lowering the expectations. Um, so when you get, you know, and then at the, when you're 18, 20, 25, you know, it, it's okay to be, you know, a little overweight, not as fit, um, because you look around and well, that's normal. And it really shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're also talking, you know, we don't want to just go after obesity and try to fix obesity. We need to fix a lot of other things. It's the same thing in terms of like wanting to increase the amount of movement in kids. It's not necessarily the amount we have to fix. It's how well they're moving or how, you know, good they're doing everything and also how they feel about it. There's studies that say how you feel about physical activity in that adolescent area actually predicts how physically active you are. So if we keep pushing kids into sports and pushing kids into things, we know that's not necessarily the way because 70% of kids are going to quit organized team sports by age 13. So like, what are they going to do by this point? I see in the clinic, I see, you know, adults that get injured or have a problem, they come in and they're like, you know, I haven't, I haven't exercised really ever. And I'm trying to get them just to a walking program. And that's even a barrier sometimes. Let me pull this back around because I noticed that about eighth or ninth grade, if they do poorly on a movement screen and flexibility test and strength test, you better take a strategic corrective approach and you better know what you're doing if you're going to fix it fast. But if you get them first, second, third, fourth, mm-hmm. and even fifth grade, uh, and this was one of the challenges that I gave myself after a conversation with John, who had a physical educator who was having a great amount of success with FMS correctives. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to give kids medicine that early. I just want to take them to Whole Foods. And so that was what spurred me to get in the gym class. And we only did it once a week. We really did. We did obstacle courses once a week, scaled to the movement problems we knew they had. And at the end of the year, we changed movement screens and balance scores. And that was basically 40 minutes of exposure one day a week to an obstacle because I knew I wasn't going to get five days. And I knew it was more than activity. It was the organization required to overcome an obstacle. And so I want people to hear, if, if you're already past adolescent and you've got serious movement problems, you better take a strategic approach or you're going to carry them and compound them with everything you do. But before that, if you can get upstream, kids that can balance, run, jump, climb, uh, carry stuff, they're going to be fine and they will have the physical aptitude to engage in a hobby or activity when they choose to if they're exposed to enough of that. So I, I'm, I'm passionate about correctives when it's the only way out and I learned through the, the, the Krauss-Weber experience that if you, don't, if you are in this much of a deficit and don't have an organized approach to exercise, if YouTube is your trainer, you're not going to get there. I'm, I'm sorry, but, again, but it, that's it how goes, that is. It goes back to education and trying to make sure you are giving these individuals at that age the, the mindset that this is what should be happening throughout your lifetime, right? You've got to get them on the right track early so they feel like this is what I should be doing. I should be yeah. trying to be active and doing certain things. Again, going back to Jenna, keep going back to the environment, create that environment that, well, again, we all know socioeconomics, the environment that they live in, it is what it is, but just trying to get them to realize 
you know, and if you want to be 80 and healthy, you just need to do something to be active every day. And that should be just ingrained and then just drilled into to kids' heads when they're, and just, so by the time they're 16, 17, 18 years old, well, this is just normal. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering if you guys saw this. So when we have like the performance training that we do, we do intake testing. So we do their movement screen, we do their Y balance test and we do agility and some jumping things. And we kept, you know, discussing how young should we go? And, um, we had a few nine and 10 year olds that wanted to do it. And we're like, all right, let's, you know, let's do it and see what happens. And I remembered going through their movement screen, their Y balance and their, their agility and things, and almost having this panic moment of like, oh my gosh, they can't move at all. Like the, you know, the kid's falling off the Y balance test and the kid that's doing a broad jump is tumbling every time he lands. And I had seriously this moment of like, did we mess up? Are we going to be able to help these kids? And I I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's amazing how much better they got so quickly. I mean, we retested like four weeks later and they were different individuals. So like what Gray's saying is when you get in early and when you can make that difference in physical education, I mean, it's pretty quick what happens you can prime the system and it's amazing because the system starts craving what you primed it with it does they 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 couldn't wait to get into gym class and actually each one of them you watch them they'd go inside their self wondering how many times i'm going to step off the balance beam or mr cook just made the box six inches higher i'm gonna you know um, try to get up on there. And we were just, Danielle and I were just making it up on the fly, but you got to come and, and see. Mm-hmm. And we, all right, here's one of the practical examples. We knew very few of those kids even had a good looking squat at a young age. I didn't train their squat, but I got them to jump off the bleacher to your point. They couldn't mm-hmm. stick a landing. It took them two weeks to stick a landing, just jumping that. And we had their shoes off. So they had to really land in an organized way. They kept falling forward. By, I think, week three or four, we were putting beanbags on their head, and they were sticking the landing and organizing their spine. But everybody could squat at the end of four weeks, and I never told them they couldn't mm-hmm. squat, and I never gave them squatting exercises. I just used jumping, but it was, was scaled. And another one that I want parents to do out there, kids about three years old should be able to do a standing long jump the length of their body, and they should take that all the way up to 18. If your kid can't cover that, don't think your kid needs jumping exercises. Actually, they need everything but that. They already said, I can't organize my body to make power. This is where you start climbing and crawling and carrying and playing Frisbee and jumping on trampolines and just keep checking that jump, and you can almost fix it. Put in the balance beam, do stuff like that. And that was one of the things. Not one of those kids could jump their body length. And when they did land, they did exactly what you said. They fell forward because their bodies didn't know how to. It, by Christmas, every kid was jumping their body length plus. And, and we never told them that was the test we were trying to fix. So, You know, there's, there's a lot. We're all going to the kid and that's, that's where that's our outcome and end result. There's a lot to be said for modeling and me, like we start looking and acting like our dogs when we hang around them, right? This is a human thing. And so modeling is really important. If, you know, if I want to learn how to lay down and watch reruns of Three's Company, I'll come to Lee's house. But if I want to. <laughs> it's I wanna, not the hairdo. He's, you got, you're sporting the 80s hairdo. So If I want to model behavior. um. And it's, you know, I don't expect a gymnastics coach to still be able to do back handsprings, but I do expect a behavior from them 
not for perfection, but showing vulnerability and that this is okay to do and try and practice. Um, so this modeling behavior, we, we can all remember back as kids, oh, I want to be like that person, that gal, that guy, that fictional thing, right? It's this modeling of behavior. Uh, uh, Daniel LaRusso became like Mr. Miyagi, right? There's a modeling of behavior that we need to be responsible for. We're all screaming about youth sports and AAUs and travel ball and it's $20,000, but who's saying yes? We're signing them up. The mm-hmm. kids didn't sign up. So we got to look at what we're doing and, and do it. Ah, the kids are different today. Bullshit. They're not different. They're not. Now, John, that's a great point. I think uh, we'll, we'll take a quick break and, and let's dive into that um, and point the finger at ourselves a little bit more when we come back. <laughs> Physical inactivity is a leading contributor to many health-related problems, but throwing a lot of exercise at it without looking at movement quality can just make the problem worse. At FMS, we are wanting to empower everyone to see movement through the lens of function. So for a limited time, we are offering our course, A Common Sense Approach to Evaluating Movement, for free to our podcast listeners. Visit functionalmovement.com and get your free course today. Follow the link in the description and use promo code CSAPOD at checkout. That's C-S-A-P-O-D. Now let's get back to the podcast. So, John, let's, let's dive into that a little bit because I think we're, we're talking about the kids. We're talking about the, the PE, physical education, but it really does come back to the parents. It comes back to us to really, you know, I, we can't blame. We can't throw the blame on everybody else when they're our kids that we're talking about. And we, we've got to set the standard. And I think, you know, even when you're sitting down at the dinner table, um, if you're letting your kids sit there and, and have a piece of cake for dinner, you know, that might be a little bit of a problem. Believe me, I've done it before, but it shouldn't be the consistent thing. Yeah, I know we're all doing it. And this isn't, you know, none of us should tell each other how to parent. That's for damn sure. Um, but there is a, a, a modeling that, you, you know, if if you have a bunch of credit card debt, spend more than you earn the the message is that might be okay or it's a major stressor if you're not you know if if there's not vegetables at the table they probably don't matter um uh tony dungy who i worked for for many years uh uh uh, head coach of the indianapolis colts among other things always used to say about almost anything hey when it's important to you is when you'll do it well whatever it is whether it's staying on sides or being a, a, a father, right? Anybody could be a father. Being a dad takes a certain degree of, of modeling and and other things. It's not a model of perfection. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. The only time we really get connected is when we show vulnerability and things like that. So it is our job, right? We can talk about this travel sports specialization is a bunch of nonsense. Stop signing up for it if you don't believe in it. And you don't have to keep up with with the others. It's not the way it is. There's statistics to prove it and there's story after story to prove it. No, let me give um, you let me give you a pat on the back, John. When when you guys move back to New Jersey, the the NFL is an occupying 700 hours a week of your life and you started rock climbing with the boys and I know that was a humbling experience because it was exactly the opposite of every type of training thing that you had done and yet you went through that. Which made me think that, you know, we're all used to helping our kids with homework, right? 
And we know that they will not digest most subject matter, especially difficult subject matter, if they don't have the homework. So we don't put all that on the teacher. There's homework. What's PE homework? You were doing PE homework with your kids, and you were actually finding more profound movement lessons in scaling the wall than you could almost any sports analogy because you had unbelievably athletic people who weren't competing with each other. They were supporting each other getting up the wall. And I remember when you were going through that with the boys, and, and it was probably blowing your head up as much as it was theirs, but you were there, and that was PE homework. It totally not. I appreciate it. It's funny. So many things came out of that. Number one, the environment of, of, of that is, is second to none. The other cool thing, and you can appreciate this as a parent, uh, all, you know, I think there's a lot of people that say, I, you know, it was the worst day of my life was when my kid beat me in one-on-one basketball or whatever the hell it was. Like, what, like that's the worst day of your life. Like my kids were so much better at me right away at the climbing. And I took such pride in that. I'm over there in the court. Actually, when I go back to the the psychologist every night after that, what I realized was that in fourth grade, when I couldn't climb the damn ropes in physical education, um, turned out to be one of the most significant days of my, of my life. And maybe, and, and I, and I went for the first time in my life in my, in my forties, went and revisited that godforsaken moment at the rock climbing wall. And it was just as shitty then as it was <laughs> now. Uh, but I had less care about what other people thought in my 40s than I did when I was in fourth grade, you know. And we want so you I on just, that wall. We need you on that wall. Yeah, <laughs> I just continued to fall and 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 do some do some things. But it was it was a a really cool thing. But the whole thing was about um, no, let's go. I'm going to do this not because I want to be your buddy, um, but it's important to we do things together. It happened to be a thing. Um, I don't care if it's rock climbing, fishing, or hanging around, whatever it is. Now, when the um, other son took up fishing, did you just show him how to sit on a cooler and drink beer all day? Or what did you guys do? What was your engagement there? I think he saw a picture of you and your buddy Neil on a little <laughs> rowboat pond. And he said, that's the life I want to live. <laughs> well, we, we all have to take ownership as parents of what, I mean, we all have to take ownership for our kids, no matter what, in any scenario. But specifically about this topic, we have to take some ownership now more than ever, right? I mean, you know, my son yesterday went to went to school to just pick up his packet of work and couldn't even go into the building. And I think that's the environment we're in now. So we know, at least for the foreseeable future, in most places, how do we, I dare say around the world, PE is going to get less emphasis than anything now. I mean, so we've got to We've got to take some ownership and ensure our kids, knowing all the research and data we've actually touched on in this in this last few minutes, we have to take ownership to make sure our kids are at home getting their physical education, not going in and and playing you know baseball and swinging uh, a thousand times at night in a cage. We have to make sure they're getting physically educated, and it's not we we can make it simple. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about. It. What are some things, Jenna, you think uh, every backyard should have, knowing what we have been doing and learning for the last four years? Because people listening look out at their own backyard right now. I mean, a CrossFit gym could be a perfect playground if you know how to use the equipment right. Uh, What's the backyard look like? Um, I would say, you know, tons of balance beams. We see such growth when we work on balance with kids because it just transcends everything else they do. You know, if they're if you're saying, oh, my kid can't jump. Yeah, your kid can't stand on one foot first. So balancing beams are definitely 
huge. And I'm not talking like you need to get something special, but you get a plank of uh, decking plank and you put that on the ground. But I would definitely have that things to climb up on, things to jump off of. And then if you are in like an apartment or you don't have a yard, what I would do is I would grab like a twister board or grab an old sheet, put some uh, colored dots on it and you work on just moving certain body parts to certain parts. It's very much like rock climbing, except you're more going horizontal than vertical, but same weight shift, same different things working on balance. Okay. Jenna, any other stuff I love that you brought up the apartments or not having a backyard. Any other things, no cost, low cost, no room, things like that you you can think around? Yeah, I mean, just any kind of obstacle. So if you're, you know, working on jumping up and over, you know, roll up a towel, do different things. But that having something that you need to work around, work over, work through definitely helps. I mean, you know, bear crawl up and down the stairs. You'll get you'll get a lot out of that. Well, you showed me these uh, multicolored rock stones. Yeah. They're, they're these rubber, uh, round, different shaped yes. rock stones. And we got them for gym class. If while your kid's watching TV, you just have those different arranged on the floor every day and they're just changing position, their foot has to mold and adapt. And I tell you, the greatest PE of all time keeps going back to the hands and feet. We're either doing balance beams or we're stepping on stones or rocks. We're climbing rope ladders and stuff like that. And I mean, most of these things aren't cost prohibitive to play with in the the um, foam rolls that everybody uses to mm-hmm. roll out their hamstrings, sliced in half long ways, have a flat and a round side. We used to play for five minutes on top of those, either flat side or round side, and that was gym class, and we gave them out to every kid at the, at the school one year, and they kept coming back and saying, my mom wants to know where you got these. They want to do my exercises with me. So that's the balance beam that can be right in front of the TV. And I mean, if that's, if that's all that you're doing, it's still better than doing it from a beanbag chair. So Yeah, just climb all over your furniture. You'll be fine. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> pretty much got my every, house. Yeah, some couches, some end tables. Just uh, don't step on the floor. See how long you can get around the room mm-hmm. without stepping on the floor. floor. See how lava. long that lasts. <laughs> Actually, that was a game I played in graduate school with my buddies after a late night of drinking. <laughs> you can't step that on the floor. We want to empower some parents to engage their kids, their teens, or something like that. So obviously, throwing the Frisbee around, doing stuff like that is good. But John introduced me to a game, and I don't know if you saw it on Shark Tank, Spike Ball. Right, That's right. still huge at the beach. Spike ball is big, and it's nothing but a little trampoline, and you're playing, but you're working in the round. And I still can't get my rhythm down for it, but my oldest daughter, Jessica, is like, hey, you want to play spike ball? I'm like, absolutely not. You're so much better <laughs> than me. It's not going to be good for either of us. Um, slack lines. They're, these, mm-hmm. they're not bungee cords. They're actual nylon straps you put between trees. It is what happens when the balance beam gets boring. Start doing, doing that kind of stuff. Um, what other either games where we can get uh, competition or we can get a challenge? Uh, what else you got? One note on the slack line, although spike ball real quick. Yeah, we, found, we saw spike ball way back at a P, got to know those guys. You put a spike ball out there with a bunch of kids, leave the ball there and walk away and you will see some of the greatest things happening in every aspect of 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 everything in in development um wherever you put that thing it's amazing one note on the slack line um hypothetically if you tie it to a tree in your backyard into a deck that's not that secure but you wouldn't know that you were that guy it may it may pull the deck out from the house (laughs) I, i don't know 
I, I've heard of that. All right, I got one for you to try. Uh, it it won't not. hurt your house if you aim in the right direction. This, this is also somewhat dangerous, but listen to what I got to say. Take out the Indian clubs and get a Rubbermaid trash can and at least teach one of the boys the circle enough and you can do ambidextrous throws because if you never release the club, you miss all the fun of how cool it is to throw that, that thing. And that's what we started doing. We hung up a tarp, put a um, trash can down, and a lot of our throwing athletes, we have them doing a step and throw with a perfect Indian club circle. Now they know why they're doing the circle because it actually allows you to hit the can with either hand. So even though you can't throw a baseball or a football the same left or right, if you do an Indian club circle and a perfect release, either high or low, you can hit the can. And it's and it's a really engaging thing because that thud is way more satisfying than seeing that club fly off and hit the curtain and you dial people in. But now, no, go practice your circles. They'll go practice their circles for four minutes and come in and whap, whap. And so it's the projection of that object, always throwing something, if you have that deliberate practice, is very engaging. And the reason it's throwing things are so good for the brain, especially both sides, is you have to reflect on your previous throw engage in the current moment and project into the future where is this thing going to land so very very good cognitive skill and you don't have to do a lot of it but don't be surprised if it lasts way longer than you plan if you start doing it who out there is doing it right what is a good resource whether it's youtube because if you go on youtube and you start you type in physical education god knows what'll come up so how what advice would you give somebody to go and do some research find out some good ideas um, as we all do, whether it's Google, YouTube, whatever it is. Here's one thing I tell you. You got people like Jenna in your community who have taught physical education, who spend all day working with children and patients, things like that. You've got physical educators right now in your town, in your community that are unbelievably amazing. They are not only working PE, but working night jobs you don't even know about just to make ends meet so they can deal with your kids. Before you go on YouTube, call these people, like go connect with these people and go, hey, I'm home. You know, here's what's going on. They've got nothing but unbelievable ideas. You want to have a blast, invite a PE teacher over and say, here's some stuff. Go. Nobody. They're like the MacGyver of fun. (laughs) Call them. Like left up to a strength coach or a physical therapist or or a Lee, you'll be bored out of your mind. Call your PE teacher. You're going to connect with your math teacher when your kid struggles when he gets a 97 and drive them insane. Call your physical educator. They'll help. They got more things. They'll, you'll be hanging up the phone before they will. They'll probably come to your house. They love it that much. <laughs> Call them. There are other good resources. There's things like ifized.com. There's all kind of things. Yeah. I'm telling you, you want to get involved in that community, stop worrying about the damn bake sale and start talking to your physical educator. They're unbelievable folks. There's Jenna's all over this country. Yeah, and I would say uh, let the kids do it too. It's it's amazing. If I set up an obstacle course for some of the kids I'm working with, we'll do a few passes, and then they're like, "Can I make the next one?" And they make one way harder and way better than I even do. So I mean, let the kids use their imagination. Let them feel some things out. Maybe get them started with some ideas. But you would be surprised the the innovative things that they can come up with as well. I was able to engage an entire class across pre-K all the way through seven 
with obstacles with obstacle courses. And I don't think there's any one sport I could have got that kind of investment in. Uh, you know, we had courses that were never ending. We had courses that they lined up at each end and cheered on their team. But I, I never had people wanting to sit on the bleachers. I never had people, you know, bailing out. And it, it created the team environment and a very athletic thing. But we weren't using sports skills. We were way below that, just creating a physical awareness. That's so cool. One, one thing, you know, we all talk about this word. Uh, called fun and we all have different interpretations of what this word fun means and it's a polarizing word <laughs> believe it or not and and we all think it's about unicorns and cupcakes and participation trophies there's there's unbelievable research by uh, uh, an incredible professor named Amanda Visick out of uh, George Washington University in DC that looked at what fun means how did she learn what fun meant she actually asked the kids um, and there's great research and what the beauty of her research in what she learned out of fun and there was, and don't let this scare you, but there's 81 determinants of fun in 11 categories. Um, but when you look at her, her papers and her research, it's really easy to sift out. Okay. This is, this means this is what's fun is and how I can do it right now. Like what's next is quite obvious. Um, and so if you want to really understand what fun is from that level, if you're just not sure, you think you're a, a boring person or something, this research, these things that she has identified as what fun is, um, means they're engaged, means they'll continue. Like success means that they came back, right? That's success. Then they wanted to come back. Um, and these things will allow them to come back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And then you adapt them to whatever it is you're doing. But this word fun, you know, let's stop throwing around a word that we haven't defined that she actually has, Amanda Visick. So you know, sum, summarize what she said, define how she defined fun. And there's 81 of them. I can't remember what I have for breakfast. But you know what? I think I think a point to be made <laughs> here, John, is I've I've been lecturing for a while. People vote with their feet. As soon as the room's not full anymore, I know I'm not making it fun. I I, I know I'm not interesting for an hour. I gotta basically cycle through fun about every 10 minutes or do something self-effacing. So I've always known on the lecture circuit, people vote with their feet. If you're a PE teacher and half the kids are on the bleachers, it ain't fun. If, if, you're, if you're a coach and a lot of your kids are showing up late and complaining all the time, it ain't fun. So I think the people who, who uh, are already making it fun could look at that list and maybe look for other opportunities but you already know if, if you're a fun and engaging coach, teacher, or parent when it comes to physically doing things. You already know um, because they're asking you, they're motivated, and, and, and you see it. And as soon as I get signals that things aren't fun, they're probably not fun for me either. So, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the whole point of it. I was always trying to challenge the kids with things that I knew challenged me. And then we just scaled it for their size and it, and it worked. You know, all true, and yet we coach and teach, and perhaps parent even, in many ways, the way we were, and we're not even conscious of that. So this 70% of kids quitting, as Jenna alluded to, stated before, um, something something happened that we're not recognizing. I, I, I agree with you, and they are walking away. And so, um, you know, we might yell it as a coach because we were yelled at. I'm not sure how many, you know, the first thing, uh, again, to coach Dungey, 
uh, one of the first things he asked a, a room of professional athletes was, do any of you need to be yelled at to do something? If you do, let me know and I'll be happy to yell at you. But if you don't, I, I think we won't do that. If you do, let me know. I can't coach that way. Uh, I don't think you can either, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad he did that because that is elegant. It's brilliant. As he is. Yeah, well, none of us are the Dalai Lama. That's why he is who he is. But, you know, how how often can you get yelled at and keep coming back for more, as an example? No, I completely agree with you, because of, of those 70% that quit, 40% say that their main reason is because it's not fun anymore. And again, fun is very um, personal to a lot of different kids, but they're, that's what they're saying is the reason that they don't want to do it anymore. Not because it was too hard, not because... You know, they lost a lot of games. Just in general, it wasn't fun. So, Jen, I know you and John over the last, I don't know, maybe few years or generally all your career now have been looking and going into PE classes and you're working a lot with these, that age group. What does a good PE situation environment look like based off what you've been seeing? Yeah, definitely. So I said at the very beginning, you know, I recognize like the opportunity that PE teachers have. And I only recognize it now because of the experience that I've had with screening, with the movement screen, with a lot of different things to show that there is value happening. So, for example, like in the clinic, I'm going to look at I'm going to do something to a client and then I'm going to look and see if I made any difference. And they see that I made a difference and I see that I made a difference. And that determines what we do next. It's really powerful for me, but it's actually really powerful for the person, too. So I think in PE, one of the things that we've seen be really meaningful to the students is when they can see progress. When students can see that, you know, you could only do this four weeks ago and now you can do this. That's incredibly meaningful to them because they see change. And that's the biggest thing of moving towards progress. So I think one of the things that PE teachers and even like coaches can do is they can start using some sort of screen, whether it's the functional movement screen or like uh, Gray was talking about the Krauss Weber, anything that they can do to show that they're making change and then use that in order to determine what they do next. And John, John, same question to you. I mean, you've been going in, uh, you know, really, you've given me some really cool stories from all over the country. Um, what have you seen that's, that's working, that's out there and, how, and what other teachers need to emulate? There's unbelievable physical educators all over this country. What I've learned a lot from them is they've been and it has been devalued. And the struggle to speak to administrators, parents, board is a big challenge for them. We know that. And, and so the perception is that they're down there in a the gym and they're running around and there's a lot of giggling or whatever's going on. But we do what in order to not to prove what you're doing or justify by any means, but as we all know that, that, that are um, uh, very uh, engaged with screening, with baselining, with feedback loops and systems, that if we put this in this example, this movement screen, whatever it is in, we, we do our thing. You can call it an intervention. You can call it whatever you'd like. You can call it just good physical education. And then we bounce it back off of that and we're self-scouting. Is what we're doing working or not? We won't pass a kid in fifth grade who's reading at a third grade level or they just squeeze through somehow. So why are we doing that in physical education? But the physical educators, I think, all, not to prove their worth, again, 
but to say, here's, here's what is working. Here's what's not. So the first conversation I had with our local phys ed teacher, again, my kid's teacher years ago, uh, uh, Kevin Lydon here, um, he was doing unbelievable warm-ups and great physical education and awesome badminton tournaments and all these wonderful things, teaching skills and incredible, impacting our kids where my kid was doing karaoke's in my driveway because he couldn't do them well in physical education. So what is that? What Kevin alerted me to is, is anecdotally, what he was seeing in movement with kids through his 20, 25 year career at that time. And we're just by eyeball, it's getting worse as a physical educator, as a coach, as a referee. And so when we talked about, hey, how are we looking at movement? And of course, you know, many people will talk about president's council, but this is a capacity testing, pacer tests and pull-ups and other things. We're not looking at movement quality. This is no uh, um, revelation to probably many folks listening or espousing what you guys have for years, but can we do this? Can we look at a movement quality piece in physical education and then bounce it off of that? And to Jenna's point, pro- growth is progress and progress is growth and nothing's more motivating than that. We lose a pound, we want to lose one more. We don't, it's very ugly. So doing that. So there's great physical education going on in the country. All we're doing, as you guys have done since the 90s, is saying, look, do your thing. But please insert this on the front end and check your work. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing you you and Jenna both alluded to with some of the research out there is, is in order to get that buy in, get the get the kids to buy in, you've got to meet them where they are. They can't fail. And part of the testing that people overlook is you're doing the testing so you can design something for them so they can have success and don't stick them in the same box or same thing that the kid who does great. Because at the end of the day, the kid that's doing great at 10 may not be doing great at 14. So it's trying to find out where you can meet them so they can have some success. If they have success, they're going to buy in. So it's interesting. So when you look at the screen itself, right, what what we've said, right, it's done its job if you found pain. One is dysfunction. Twos and threes were good. What I've learned from so many teachers, not just physical educators, is this. If you're really to the left on the bell curve, like, you, there's some issues, uh, reading, that whatever it is. There's programs and things and resources and money and folks for you. If you're just a little bit, if you're down on the bell curve, we tend to lose you. Like we lose ones. We address the zeros, the pain, the oh God. We lose the ones, the guys, the, the guys and gals on top of the bell curve. Okay, they're okay. And then the ones all the way over to the right. Oh my God, if they're going to be a pro athlete, we'll kiss their ass till they're there. But the ones are what we lose. So when we can identify those kids that are getting lost, that's wonderful. Well, you know, something that Dan Heath said in the uh, Upstream book is that when we arrive at a, at a really complex problem, like you've got a team or you've got a class, and, and John, imagine one of your, you know, a lot of, lot of rookies coming in, they got way more ones than the guys you've been training. You see that work you got in front of you. One of the reactionary things that happens in, in organized professional systems is we go for the easy or convenient answer to why I got so many ones or why I got so much pain. And since you can answer that probably without responsibility, it's not your problem anymore. So, you know, we see musculoskeletal on a rise now, but we've seen opioid addiction up on a rise for 10 years. What do you think they're taking the opioids for? You know, I I know I need to move. I physically, biologically have a drive to move and it hurts. 
right? So we're 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 missing we're missing that whole upstream opportunity, I think, in many cases. And when we do have a problem laid right at our feet, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough budget. That, and, and I've been sitting in these movement screen courses since the very beginning, and everybody with their hand up wants me to give them an excuse that they don't have to do it, but go ahead and start doing our exercises. And I'm like, don't do that. You know, you, you got to make time where you can. And, and I know that when you started applying the movement screen, you didn't do it team-wide. You found a few people that, that looked like completely different people to see how they fared on the screen and see if it gave you operational latitude, see if it gave you a competitive advantage. You've always said, as a guy who's putting these guys in programming that's supposed to uh, get up against their weakest link, if I can't find that weakest link, then I'm just hoping, you know? And so the... the the competency you gained with screening made it go team-wide, but you didn't attempt team-wide very first. And I don't know why when people hear this message, they think, well, if I can't do it the whole school, I'm not doing it. You know, or if I can't do it all on Tuesday, I'm not doing it. Those are just convenient uh, excuses, but they're not good reasons. So, Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the, the Kevin and many PE teachers, you know, we, we went into actually, okay, here's how you test the class. Like, we don't even have to test the whole class because we do things in stations and here's our time frame and we don't need, we have the kids all year. We don't even have to do that. Um, the funniest part is not only did we just test a few and learn and things like that. Um, I've said this before, truth be told, not only did we just test a few people, but I was actually hoping and praying it didn't work. Yeah. Um, cause it's it going to create a lot more work if it did. And I, and I think yeah. that's an honest appraisal. I mean, if, if you <laughs> lean in, you're going to have a lot of work to do, but you're glad you did it now. Well, so. the, one, the one thing, John, that you told me early on when, when you and I started talking, and, and you told me something that has stuck with me, and God, i got to give wow. you some credit, it did. Um, Must have been a compliment if you remembered it. Uh, well, no, it, it wasn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. a compliment. It, it was said when you started looking differently, and, and again, we're, we're talking about movement. When you started looking at the movement screen, it immediately made you a better strength coach. Because you had to, you realize that there's some guys here that need something different than some other guys. And in the PE situation, it's no different. Is you've got to, you're identifying, as you said, you've got to help these kids who aren't doing as well as some other kids. And you've got to start being a little bit more creative in how you do that. Oh, yeah, it absolutely did. Because I think, like, you know, I'm sure Jenna got all A's in high school because she's she's real smart. But I would say that I I sure damn didn't. I'm sure Gray and Lee, you didn't either. But uh, uh, there was so you've you've gone on to some pretty good success uh, in your careers, to say the least. Jenna has um, somebody at some point either gave us you know there's there's only six inches in a pat on the back and a kick in the ass. Somebody at some point said, this kid might be a little different and the grades may be not an A's or whatever it is, but there might be a difference here. Um, and so by identifying these things, like we're just not going to teach to the A student. Um, uh, they're all an A student until they're not. But by identifying, by looking to be able to purposely help someone um, get you know, get to where they're going. They're full of self-doubt anyway. No need for you to pile that shit on. 
So what is the thing I can help you with? Like, I, if I'm being honest, can I help 100% of the things I can't help you with 100% at 100%? You already have some, and I'm not that good. So what are the things that I can, right? We all love the phrase bang for the buck, big deal. What are these things that I can identify? You guys talk about, you guys use the phrase low-hanging fruit all the time. Wonderful. What are the things I can take out of this basket, maybe put them in this basket that can help you be better? So if you hire a financial person and you have $50,000 in credit card debt and all they want to do is invest in your invest your money, they forgot to look at the thing that will help you more, which is get you out of the damn credit card debt. Remove the negative. <laughs> yeah, remove the negative. Exactly. Yeah. So you guys taught me that 100 years ago, Greg. And it's one of the greatest lessons you can ever learn is is remove the negative. What the hell's the anchor that we can loosen up? Whatever it is. Well, that's and that's so one of the, the one of the things that was profound to me about movement screening. If you flunk a movement screen, I can't coach you. And the reason I can't coach you is your problem is not at a conscious level. Most people who get a one on the squat don't wish for that. And they're attempting to do better, but by the standards and the self-limiting of the way we created the position, you are subconsciously writing a one, even though your body wants a three, your mind wants a three. My whole point is when you flunk a movement screen, you can't be coached like other people are coached because they don't have access to the movement patterns that are already broken. So, you know, your excuse for poor performance is a poor movement screen. If you have a adequate movement screen and poor performance, then I know we go look at a hole in your performance. And it's simple as that. There's, there's two kids. One kid can see the blackboard and can't read, and one kid can't see the blackboard. They don't need the same thing, but the outcome is a D. But the process of getting them both to a B is completely different. One has a physical barrier to skill acquisition, and one doesn't have the skill of reading. And and so movement screening to me is that. If you flunk a movement screen, then you got to take your coaching hat off. You can't coach out of this problem. you got to follow a strategy. Well, well, that's what makes a good educator in whatever environment you're in. That that is a good educator, someone that can recognize that and tackle that problem. And, and, you know, again, that's, you know, we've got a tool that can help, but at the end of the day, that educator's got to know and be able to recognize that and do something with it. Yeah, no doubt. Remove, remove the good job. Come on. You got it. How does that feel? What is that from your vernacular? See if you can help people. So Jenna, what, when you look to implement this into some of the, um, physical education places you've gone into, what's the react, been the reaction from the, some, some of the educators, some of the people you've gone into and said, hey, because th- this is different. This is different mm-hmm. in the environment. I mean, when you start talking about movement screening, what's been their response? It's been awesome. It's like finally answering the piece that they've been missing to some extent because their main goal is to get kids moving better. You know, they want their kids to love PE as much as they loved PE. That's why they're teaching it. But they get to this point where they're like, okay, this group of kids isn't moving well or they're not enjoying PE and why is that? A lot of times they find the answer in doing the screening. You know, they're like, okay, I've been trying to get this kid's broad jump to be what Grace said earlier, to be their height. And I've been telling them to do this with their arms and do this with their legs. And I did the movement screen and I found that, you know, they don't actually even have the the flexibility in their ankles or their their, uh, hamstrings or their movement that they need in order to be able to do this jump. So it's finally answering that question of like 
why am I not making the difference I want to make? And how can I intervene to make the difference that I want to make? So, John, I kind of throw it to you because I know and what you've been really working on is going in and, and helping some of these teachers implement this whole um, philosophy. Yeah, Jenna and I have gone into uh, quite a few schools and talked with many, many folks around the country um, on this. And, and it's basically it's it's again, it's inserting here's this thing to do before this look at movement quality. Um, uh, we didn't know as much about the, the super young, right? K through three or four. Gray's learned a lot um, working with those kids. Um, but what we, what they have seen is that is the ability to attach what they're doing to the skill that they're working on. So it, it flows together. It's not another PE program in a box. It's like, if you look at it, it's the roots of the tree. We're providing the roots where the end, the outcome, the, 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 what they call, um, their movement skills are like the branches and the the leaves, right? The leaves change with the season, so do sports. But if we can look at what underpins physical literacy, physical development, fundamental, what they call fundamental movement skills of sport, and then and 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 then the sports skills. So whether you have a volleyball lesson, dance, uh, uh, basketball, badminton, spike ball, they go in, they put the movement quality piece underneath. Hey, how come I, you know, I'm not. Uh, uh, it's tough for me to throw. Well, we may have identified things underneath, as you guys have alluded to, from shoulder mobility or reciprocal patterning in the lower body that are easily integrated into your already existing PE class. And I can tell you they're easily integrated because the kids are helping the kids. That's the way it's been set up. We've got kids helping kids and letting the teachers actually take the leadership role of a true leader, which is letting them go. And the kids are helping the kids. The administrators are going insane over that. And you're getting connection amongst the kids, not about who can throw a faster fastball, which is going to end up as a Tommy John anyway, but what is our movement quality and how can we help each other achieve that? Because I'm going to might be better in some things and you may be better in others. And our goal is to rise each other up. And then we attach to the sports, even if it matters. And that's not physical education anyway. You can get rid of the basketballs or you don't. And so they, the teachers have loved that we've not thrown them PE programs in a box, that we've simply come in underneath with fundamental sound movement quality that they may not even have heard about since they took their motor control course freshman year of college, but have reintroduced this and have married it and remarried it, if you will, um, along this, the route of a tree. It's just roots to the leaves. It's beautiful. No, it's 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 good, and in, in, in it's that practical access. You you don't need a force plate to talk about biofeedback, and you don't need a textbook to demonstrate motor learning. You know they 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 happen that way. And I I always just worked with the kids, and the one piece of education I implanted the very first day is four four Bs: uh, breathe, bend, balance, and bounce. And we talked with Ron Jones yesterday about how important it is to get kids to that rhythmical activity because it's sort of like that neural glue that once you can turn a motor pattern into a rhythmical activity, I think it's a great demonstration of that subconscious ability. And that's what we want to do. We want that subconscious posture and athletic patterning to be in their walk, in their stride, 
even when they're not thinking about it or even you know when they're listening to music or something we just want to see that that glide when they walk it took Danielle a year and a half to introduce jump rope well that wasn't convenient because I had a lesson plan that said I needed to breathe bend balance bounce but they are going to bounce when they're ready and when they're ready to bounce they can't get enough of it but whenever I gave them those four B's so they could work backward when bouncing isn't working how is your balance today Oh, your balance is off today. How's your bending today? Oh, you can't bend well. That's probably because you're holding your breath and not breathing like you're supposed to. And so we would always work down the scale. So when somebody's not having a good day on the balance beam and we're getting to have an emotional time, hey, what's your bending like? What's your breathing like? And they recalibrate and go. So by the time we got to jump rope, we did the whole school. We never had an ankle sprain. We never had an accident. We never had anything, but it didn't fit my agenda. To your point, it fit theirs. And so I introduced bounce when bounce was something the majority could do at a level where that would prime them. It wouldn't humiliate them or anything like that. And it took a year and a half of balance and crawling to get us where jump ropes weren't going to be an utter failure. And it didn't fit my calendar, but it totally fit theirs. John and Jenna, thanks so much for uh, being on today. This is certainly something that we're all passionate about as parents. We, we definitely want to try to tackle this overwhelming issue, but hopefully we just touched on a few things that will help out. So really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Thank having you. us. That'll do it for this episode of The Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.